Historical Theology, Week 8. Today we're going to talk through salvation in the medieval era. Um, I don't know if I put this on your notes, but often the medieval era is also known as the Dark Ages. Because of a variety of different things, but it is not necessarily a dark area in terms of theology. It, there's a lot of good thinkers doing some good stuff. They were serious about scripture, about understanding it. Uh, their scholars then were true scholars, but there are some dark spots uh, just as there are now to, and uh, just as there were in the early ages, the patristic era as well. So certainly not going to cover a thousand years uh, comprehensively tonight or uh, on salvation, much less in the next couple of weeks. The church last week, um, and then I think scripture and authority next week. Um, but try to give an overview that will hopefully be helpful. The patristic era. We, we looked at the doctrine of the Trinity, and we, we talked about how a lot of the controversies were regarding Christ. Um, typically, who is Jesus? Did he have two natures, one nature? How do those natures relate? That's where the majority of the discussion was uh, in the patristic era. There's a lot of discussion in the medieval era uh, on the, the nature of the church. You've got your, your church split between the Eastern Church, Western Church, uh, about a year 1,000. Um, so you do have that. Uh, you've got some other discussion between Eastern and Western Church, but a lot of the discussion, the, the key theological discussion not uh, that we would think of is probably on the how of salvation. Not on the who is Christ, but how has Christ worked and brought salvation. So we're going to try to talk about that tonight, looking at some of the key figures. Um, there is an ongoing discussion uh, through this time period, just as there was with Pelagius and Augustine on sovereignty, man's responsibility, total depravity, predestination, reprobation. All of that's happening still. Um, we're not going to spend a lot of time on that tonight, though. We will look a little bit more about how that uh, comes out in a future week, though. So, And that discussion continues to today. Um, so that, that's kind of where... Uh, our disc salvation discussion is not going to be. It's not going to be on those aspects. Instead, it's going to be the how Christ has done. So, let's talk through key figures. And I'm going to try to get us to some time towards the end to work through some biblical text. But first, let's talk about Gregory the Great. Okay. With a name like Gregory the Great, you got to assume he's pretty great. Uh, he's got uh, solid theme music, um, a good selection there when he enters the ring. And Gregory the Great did some good stuff that we would agree with. He also has had some stuff that we would not necessarily agree with. And one of those doctrines we're going to talk about in a minute. Um, but at the positive level, Gregory the Great... Uh, was Bishop of Rome, still not known as the Pope at this point. Um, he's Bishop of Rome in 540, or born 540. So he is known for his views on mission work. He actually sent missionaries to 
England that were highly influential. Um, he sent Augustine of Canterbury, not Augustine of Hippo, um, a couple hundred years apart, but Augustine of Canterbury, had a great impact Britain and beyond. Um, even, I wrote on my notes, even as Pope, but even as Bishop of Rome, he tried to follow the monastic rule. He cared a lot about monasteries, um, the, the good that they were trying to do. He tried to follow an orderly way of life, even while Bishop of Rome. Um, and he's known for his mission work, his monasteries, and for his views on purgatory. Dum, dum, dum. Okay? But like you've got to have some bad theme music when that one happens in your head. Okay, Gregory the Great, good theme music, purgatory, bad theme music. Okay. So, he is not the first theologian um, or church leader to articulate a view of purgatory. He is not going to formally uh, establish once for all purgatory um, as a view of the Catholics. Uh, but he, it did flourish. He allowed and even created an atmosphere that encouraged uh, what I would say is bad exegesis of the Bible, a bad reading of the text, bad theologizing on the atonement. Um, he allowed that to flourish. Um, one of his references to support the doctrine of purgatory was from Matthew 12, 32. So anybody there already? Read it aloud for us. <clears throat> And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Okay. So how do you think he could use that to support his ideas of purgatory? Because when I first read it, I was like, huh? I expected a little more clarity on this one. But age to come being purgatory, because if it, it wouldn't it matter what you said if you're in hell and if... You couldn't say something bad in heaven. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, because someone will not be forgiven in the age to come for blasphemy or speaking against the Holy Spirit, therefore there is an age to come where you are, could possibly be forgiven. That is his rationale. I don't think it's great. I, you know, it's not one of those like, this is a necessary opposite. Um, the, the big picture on this one is rejection of the Son of Man and rejection of the Holy Spirit. Um, rejection of the Spirit. Witness to the Son of Man has eternal consequences. Okay? Um, and I, I don't view that as saying that there is an age to come where some things may be forgiven. It does not say whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man can be forgiven in the age to come. It is silent there. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Does not suggest or state. We're moving from a very loose, like, hey, there is an age to come, to you might be able to be forgiven there, from a you can't be forgiven there. Not great. Um... But at least it does reference forgiveness in an age to come, I guess. We've got to give you a little, like, you know, in today's grading scale, um, this doesn't quite fail because you can't fail anymore. But, um, yeah, th this is not passing. This is well below average. Um, so this is, this is a solid D um, and not in a good way. This is, this is bad. 
But that's what he did. That's where he seemingly supported his stuff from. There's some more. Um, but there's his support. And he called for a sacrifice of mass for 30 days to be offered, for 30 days so that a monk could be released from purgatory. Now, what did he think of monks in general? Positive. Yeah, positive. Like, so if you needed to do this for 30 days for a really good monk, how long do you need to do it for a dude like me? You know, or for the average person. Um, yeah. Nancy, what'd you say? good monk, why is he in purgatory? Great question. Didn't he receive absolution or something before his death or something? Yeah. For minor sins that have... Uh, that were marking someone at death. That, that's kind of the theory that gets floated around. Um, purgatory officially became a Catholic doctrine in 1439. Council of Florence, words are this. Translated into English, obviously it was not written in this modern English in 1439. Okay? If truly penitent people die in the love of God, because they have made satisfaction for acts and omissions by worthy fruits of repentance, their souls are cleansed after death by cleansing pains. And the suffrages of the living faithful avail them in giving relief from such pains. That is, sacrifices of masses, prayers, almsgiving, and other acts of devotion, which have been customarily performed by some of the faithful for others of the faithful in accordance with the church's ordinances. All right, please identify a problem with that statement. So you are not getting your own salvation. Somebody else is getting it for you. Okay, so we have the problem that somebody else is doing something for you. It's not based on Okay, where'd you pick up on the works aspect? Well, because the, 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 what's implied in there is it's the things that you were doing that get you into heaven. And if you didn't do those things, then someone else can do them for you. No, it's if you have done them, somebody else can help you a little bit more. Notice, if you've truly been penitent and made your satisfaction for acts and omissions by worthy fruits of repentance, if you've done enough to show yourself, then somebody else can come alongside you. Okay. It assumes Christ's work is not sufficient. Yeah. That's God's grace is not absolute. Yeah. But you can't make cleanse. Yeah. Pointed a man wants to die and then the judgment. We gotta throw that part out of the Bible out. Okay. So there's a lot. There's very little that we would actually agree with in this statement. We're much more prone to agree with Pelagius on some of his stuff than we are with the, the Council of Florence on purgatory. Okay, so this is a, a key statement here. Um, I, you guys have picked up on many the issues there. We're going to talk through kind of a few other things as it relates to both purgatory and justification in a little bit. Uh, there's two key passages I want us to look at um, that I think help uh, with the idea of purgatory and coming around on that. So somebody will navigate to Hebrews chapter 10. If I can get somebody else to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 51. Who's 1 Corinthians for me? I got it. All right. Thanks, Chris. Who's Hebrews 10, 14? I got it. 
Thank you. All right, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. For by a single offering is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Okay. For by how many offerings? All right, so if you've been reading your Bible in a year, how often were offerings given in the Old Testament? All the time. Okay. All day long. All day long. Like even purifying the temple to like, you know, 12 people doing different things. I mean, okay. There was a never a time when there was not smoked meat on the grill. Okay. Yeah. So all the time, Hebrews says a single offering he is perfected for all time. Okay, so it, the, the Council of Florence, these are those that are not yet perfect. They were good. They've shown worthy fruits of repentance, and yet their souls need cleansed by cleansing pains. Cleansed after death by cleansing pains seems to be a direct denial of the single offering Christ has not perfected those who are already sanctified. The end of the language is those who are being sanctified. So do Christians have ongoing sin that they need God's forgiveness for? Yes. Okay. Do we have ongoing sin? Yes. Are we still being made holy? Yes. So as this one, as they rightly recognize at the Council of Florence, people struggle still with imperfect obedience as believers, and yet Christ has perfected with a single offering for all time those being sanctified. So this does not teach what uh, we will look at probably in the, what do we call in the third era? The re re we're going straight from Reformation into what, modern? Modern. Okay, what the modern era would look at as sinless perfectionism or a view that when somebody's trusted in Christ, they can live a sinless life um, because of the power of the Spirit in them, that they're capable of, per of making it to a sanctified state um, in earth. Now, Hebrews 10 says, those still being sanctified, made to walk in holiness on a daily basis, are perfected for all time through one sacrifice. Not through ongoing masses, prayers, giving, and other acts of devotion by some faithful other ones. And 17 right below it kind of destroys the argument as well. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Yeah. That means that for purgatory to be true, then God has to be lying. Yeah. And where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin? Like... Well, you know, hey, um, I think Hebrews is pretty clear on this one. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. Behold, I am telling you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. The nursery verse. <laughs> not all the babies will sleep, but they will all be changed before they, sorry. Yeah. All right, <laughs> sorry. And verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Okay. How does that verse relate to the concept of purgatory? Well, 
we will all be changed in a moment. There it is. There's no time frame. No time frame. Yeah. It's not a, you go to purgatory for a intermediate amount of time, 30 days while people offer mass and sacrifice for you and penance and do all those other things for you. It's in a moment and twinkling of an eye, bang, changed. Jesus didn't say to the thief on the cross, in 30 days you'll be with me on, in paradise. Today. So, a variety of other biblical texts. Um, your homework entry is a uh, response that John Piper wrote to the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. Um, actually, was looking up and trying to find some good articles on it. The first article that I found on like the atonement and purgatory and how those relate together actually was from a Catholic standpoint. And they argued that Purgatory is only possible because of the atonement of Christ, that it's not adding to the atonement of Christ. I don't know what they were doing with words. It reminded me of a conversation with a Mormon. When they took all the words that I know what they mean and used them in the words that I don't know what they mean, but they think I know what I mean. They're just redefining the words that I use. Um, so, but they're like denying all of the charges. So if I was having this conversation with that author of that place, they'd be like, yeah. Clearly, like Jesus' sacrifice is good and perfect and for all time, and, and yet purgatory exists, and it's only by his grace that it's even possible, and I don't get how it's argued. Um, by the way, do any of you have a Catholic background? Any of you grow up? Well, my, my grandmother was, and she was in the house all the time, and I went to a Catholic school, and I was okay. So I know the Hail Marys and all Yeah, stuff. okay. <laughs> um... Has anybody heard like purgatory articulated slightly better than this version from the Council of Florence that we've kind of come after? Or is it typically that like a very, very in harmony with what you've gotten there, Council of Florence? It's kind of like a holding area. Yeah. Just like a holding area. Where you had to pay for the for whatever was left over. I do think it's important that when we dialogue with other people that we let them articulate what they believe rather than us assuming we know what they believe. I don't like when people assume they know what I believe because I'm Baptist. Because there's a lot of crazy Baptists out there. Okay. Um, and some of them probably think I'm one of them. Um, but it is. So I think it's important that we do let other people articulate rather than just assume our textbook knowledge of somebody else's beliefs. Um, it's a good opportunity to find out what they believe and why. Um, but uh, I think your article there at the end will help. I think Hebrews 10 is hard for anybody with the concept of purgatory. That, that's a very clear reference as opposed to the Matthew 12, 32. It's like an argument from silence almost. Um, there's some very clear indications in Scripture that would speak against the idea of purgatory. But, all right, what is Penance. payment, and is it always, we think of payment as in money, like I hope you gave your payment for dinner. I think it's proof you're repenting, I think that's kind of how the word kind of migrated. So the way, what I wrote down on this next one, penance is, is like payment, repentance is an action, we repent, Christ paid our penance. Yep. So penance versus repentance. Is there, they've got 
similar roots in there. They sound similar. Is there a way in which it would be helpful to differentiate between those? You can pay a penance and not be okay. and not repent. Yeah. It's just the price you pay is not admitting guilt or. It could also be admitting, but not actually changing. Right. That's the repenting is but is to change direction. Mm -hmm. and if you're just paying for your fine, let's mm -hmm. say I'm speeding and I'm willing to pay the fine yes. for speeding every day, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not going to change and, right. until I get to ten points, and then I'm going yep. to change. Yep. I'll remit <laughs> the payment required, whether or not I agree that what I did was wrong or whether or not I plan on changing or surrendering on that action. I think that's a... Now, is it possible to do penance while also repenting? I would say yes. Okay? Um, but often when we think of penance, I don't want you to confuse that with repentance. Uh, repentance is a change of heart and mind leading to a change of action. Penance is the payment, whether it is monetary, whether it is good deeds, whether it is works of service. Um, and there's a difference in those. They're related, but there's a difference. Um, and one has to involve the attitude and the heart. So, And there is some benefit and some biblical kind of background for it because it says if you've wronged somebody... It doesn't say, ask God for forgiveness. It says, leave your th gift there. Go and make yourself right. So there is some action mm -hmm. that's supposed to be done. It's when when it becomes a routine, not a change of heart, make things right kind of difference. Yeah. So if you see penance, you need to understand what's meant by it, what it's intended to accomplish not just automatically, categorically reject. Um, know what it is intended to be, what, how it's being talked about, what it's intended to accomplish. Um, if it's just restitution, is the, the way that we might would use that language. If it's restitution for your, you doing wrong to others by giving back to them what you've wronged to them, um, that could be an act of penance. You know, if it's, hey, I'm going to pay God, I'm going to pay the church $200 so that I can do the, the sin that I want to do, well, that's a little different. Um, all right. How did Christ bring salvation? Let's turn to Colossians chapter 1, and I want us to wrestle with this for a minute. Okay? Try not to look ahead. If you've already looked ahead, that's fine. But if you haven't looked ahead, now I've sparked your interest, and you are a sinner, and I've activated in you the desire to disobey. <laughs> You never wanted to look at page two so much as you do right now. It's the very thing that Paul talks about on this all. But Colossians chapter one, verse 13 and 14. Volunteer to read for us. And then we'll talk about it. All right, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son have redemption for, and the forgiveness of sins. Okay. Delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. All right. 
What does redemption mean? We have redemption. What does it mean, redemption? To buy back. To buy back. Yep, that's the way it's often translated um, and put briefly. To buy back. So, who did God buy us back from at what cost? This is the how that they're starting to wrestle with. Okay? At the cost of the son, very clearly, who was the redemption, who was the buying back from, due to? It's from God because of the death has now owned us because of the consequences of our sin. Okay. He, it's not paid to like Satan. It'd have to be paid to God. That's the just God that has to be paid. And so only the yep. sacrificial part of God. All right. So we're going to do a show of hands on an honesty on this one. And I'm going to be honest with you. Until several years ago, until I don't even know when, I would have articulated very quickly that God, that Christ paid the ransom, the cost of redemption of buying back to Satan. I would have easily articulated that. It made sense to me. Like, why would God pay God back? Through the death of his own son. So, coming into tonight, would you have said, raise your hand, show of honesty, you can join me, like, I don't know how long ago when I finally would have realized this. Um, but even, like, there's been times that I've probably stated this weirdly, how many of you would say, coming in tonight, I think God paid the cost of buying us back to Satan? Raise your hands. Show of hands. Nobody's going to raise their hand? Yeah. Yeah. It, it is the classic view for the er, all of the patristic age. And it just doesn't make sense. Like, who else did God pay in my mind? It just didn't make sense that God didn't pay Satan. Um, and this language here, it's really simple. If you only look at Colossians 1, it really looks like, I mean, transferred us from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. And I think darkness, bad. Satan, bad. Okay? We've re re received redemption, the forgiveness of sins. For the rest of you, that's awesome. You grew up in really good theological backgrounds that articulated this in a really positive way. And you never recall the time when you didn't. That's good. Yeah, like it's good if you've never, if you've always thought the way, because, I, you know, I, the way that you guys put it was, hey, God paid the debt of sin um, to himself for us, buying us back. The concept of buying back, we build it a lot into, um, but buying us back from the consequences of sin. The classic view of the patristic age, also known as the ransom view. You look at page two now. Christ paid a, is that Christ paid a ransom to Satan. Christ paid to Satan the redemption cost. It's the classic view. Um, along comes one of the leaders on this one, Anselm of Canterbury. Okay. Anselm begins walking through, and here's his logic, and I, I gave you a bunch of points on this, okay? I think we'll agree with almost all of them, and one seems to flow after the other. Humanity always belongs to God. 
and is in God's power, does not on its own belong to Satan. That's one that we could struggle with. What does it mean to be transferred, delivered from the domain of darkness? Do we belong to Satan or has, are we debtors in our sin to death? But he says humanity belongs to God. Ransom doesn't need to be made to redeem us from Satan that we actually still belong to God as his possession. He's still in charge of everything. Sin ruins humanity. We would agree with that one, I think. Humans no longer give God the honor he is due. He looks at that as that big essence of sin is not honoring God as God is due honor. So therefore, he says in his Cardeus Homo, why God became a man. Therefore, everyone who sins is under obligation to repay God the honor which he has violently taken from him. This is the satisfaction which every sinner is, is obliged to give to God. Okay? Everyone who sins under obligation to repay God the honor which he has violently taken from him. And I don't know, I got it, maybe not in this quote, but somewhere else he essentially says, and you can't give God the honor in the present that he was due in the past because he was due that honor in the past and he still do that honor in the present. So because you have dishonored God in the past, you cannot make up for it because he is due all honor and you cannot give more honor than he is due to make up now by overpaying him the honor that he is due. Humanity has sinned. Or sorry, God must be just. And he can't simply release unpunished sinners who have not shown him the honor that he is due. Because he is a just God, he cannot release unpunished sinners. Humanity has sinned and cannot make their own reparations. And only the one who has committed the sin is fit to offer the repayment. Because humanity has failed to honor God. The one that must make up for humanity must be human. Because it's not that trees can make up for humans because trees already do their thing as they should. Animals do their thing as they should, except for cats. Okay. So it must be a human. But the problem is, humans have sinned. The only fit person, therefore, is the God-man. No one can pay except God. No one ought to pay except man, it is necessary then that a God-man should pay it. Did not give you this quote. Here's a longer one. In order, therefore, that a God-man should bring about what is necessary, it is essential that the same one person who will make the recompense should be perfect God and perfect man. For he cannot do this if he is not true God, and he has no obligation to do it if he is not a true man. Given, therefore, that it is necessary for a God-man to be found in whom the wholeness of both natures is kept intact, it is no less necessary for those two natures to combine as wholes in one person. Okay, I'm going to read the, the key, what I think of the key quote in all this, not just the two natures, one person. If we were going back on incarnation, we would do that. He cannot do this if he is not true God. He has no obligation to do it 
if he is not true man. But as man, obliged. As God, capable. So why did God become a man? To satisfy the wrath of God against sin for man that has not honored him as man should. That is Anselm's satisfaction theory. Rather than the ransom focus that God's just wrath against sin for man's dishonoring of him is what we are to be bought back from and brought back from as well. He didn't win all of the discussion once and for all time, though. Okay? Along comes Peter Abelard. Moral influence theory is what he's known as. He also critiques the ransom view in the classic view. And he essentially puts it this way, and I think this is also helpful. If one leaves there, he uses master-slave terminology. If one leaves their righteous master and lord, as the result of the seduction of another master, the original lord would never repay to secure back his original slave. Okay? If one leaves their righteous lord and master as a result of the seduction of another, the original lord would never repay to secure back his original slave, servant. So therefore, no ransom is due to the wrongful master that has seduced those that belong as acts of God's creation to him. Really helpful there. And then he just throws some curveballs. Christ's death doesn't secure justification by his blood. Instead, he views it as love shown. It's really not, he doesn't go with Anselm and say, hey, it's the, the wrath of God satisfied by the blood of Christ and the sacrifice. Instead, he talks about the love shown in sacrifice. And that love shown in the sacrifice of Christ is applied to those who love Christ. And he gets warm and fuzzy. <laughs> Curls up by the fireplace with some hot chocolate, wearing his warm and fuzzy pajamas and talking about love. And it just kind of goes weird. He does a great job on one spot. And we're like, ah, yes, the cross displays the love of God. And the, we love because he first loved us. And we love because he puts his spirit in us that we might be capable of love. But the cross is not something that simply beckons us to love. It does something. It justifies is the language that we would use. Um, and we'll talk more about that when we start looking at the Reformation. But there's various views of how Christ, how Christ secures our redemption. And there's some aspects that we want to agree with in a lot of this stuff. Um, we want to agree I think that the cross shows the love of God. But it's not only the love of God. Is the satisfaction the only thing that the cross shows? Did, did Jesus, is Jesus absent love at the cross? No. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the cross is not absent the love of God. 
And I don't think that Anselm is arguing that the cross is absent the love of God and that we should love God in return. But that's the big emphasis there. All right. Along comes Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas has written a ton of stuff. Really, really smart guy. Makes some good arguments for God and his existence. He agrees with Anselm that someone must be sinless to make satisfaction for sins. Dum, dum, dum. Then, bad music. He thinks that humans participate with God to obtain salvation. Through works of grace, like penance, confession, and contrition. He loves medical terminology, and he says, Penance is a medicine for sin that the divine doctor will use to heal. Grace is not simply imparted. Rather, it is gradually infused, little by little, as they participate in the acts of grace in the church, namely, the sacraments. So that's some quotes from him and about him and his views about how salvation and righteousness and grace comes little by little infused. And since the language of imparted and infused was there, I remember that Pastor Jacob recently did a youth weekend you know, focusing on what's imparted to us and what is infused or not infused. So rather than me recap that for you, I'm going to let him take the next five or ten minutes and walk us through what is imparted, what is infused, what is imputed instead. Yeah, so as Pastor Jason said, I think it was not this past fall retreat, but the fall retreat prior, uh, the youth, we all went on a retreat, and the theme was imputation, not infusation. Um, and you could see the concept from what we're talking about here uh, under, the, under Aquinas. Uh, and this is a... Um, an important discussion, and it's a hard discussion to have, especially when we're looking at the medieval era, which we are. Um, and I want to propose the reason why this is difficult is because during the medieval era, um, there wasn't a good theological development in the distinction between justification and sanctification. So we distinguish the terms Justification and sanctification. Justification means what? What does justification mean? Made it just as we didn't sin. Made it just as we didn't sin. That you are declared right, right? Instantly you're justified before God. You're made right before God. And then sanctification, we understand as the growing process um, being made more and more holy to look more like Christ as we continue to grow as Christians. So that's the process. Um, in the medieval era, they would look at the facts that, okay, if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, you're to become holy. You see that as a process. And that's showing you that you're saved. And so the problem was there wasn't a distinction between those terms. And and so you could see this is one of the benefit of theological development throughout church history for us to be able to articulate these things, um, I think, more faithfully. Um, but as it relates to um, imputation, not infusation, um, Aquinas and many others articulated that it was, um, before I give away the answer, uh, let me ask you, what are we referring to when we say 
something is imputed versus something is infused. What is the something that is put on a person? What's imputed and what is infused? What would you guys say here? Salvation. Salvation, yes. What saves someone? Salvation is a is a fine answer, but I think there's a better answer. Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, okay. The Holy Spirit. We could go there as well. I think righteousness. Uh, we're talking about God's righteousness. Um, and I see a little bit later in J- Jason's notes, uh, we're going to get to Romans 3 and 4, talking about God's righteousness. And for Abraham, it was counted to him. Um, his faith was counted to him as righteousness. So we are sinful human beings. We need a Savior. Um, and we need to be declared right. And the way we are declared right is to receive this righteousness. So how do we receive this righteousness? Is it imputed onto us? And when I say imputation, what does that mean? We're referring to something that's instant um, in time. right? It's declared upon us. God declares his righteousness upon us, which makes us saved. So how do we receive Christ's righteousness. If we identified what we need to receive, it's righteousness we receive by the Holy Spirit, right, which gives us salvation, as you guys had mentioned. But how do we receive it? This is going to the question, how, as Jason's been asking, right? We've we talk about who God is, and I think the medieval theologians, many of them, articulated well who God is, but many times they get the how we receive his righteousness incorrectly. So how would you guys articulate is God's righteousness imputed onto us? It's through his son, yes, through Christ and his death on the cross. But what term do we use? And we find this again in the Reformation era, which is why this is so helpful for this discussion. We use by faith, right? Um, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us by faith. Um, Someone want to look up really quick. This will be the only verse I would look to, and I'll hand it back to Jason shortly after. Philippians 3.9. I think it's that passage. I have to find Philippians. Unless someone else wants to turn there. Philippians 3.9. Someone want to read that? found in him, not having righteousness of my own, makes a law, but that, that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, that depends on faith. Yes, it depends on faith, right? Righteousness from God that we receive through faith. So that's what's imputed upon us, what we would believe and confess. And then we would say this is the, the doctrine that Martin Luther recovers and recognizes uh, when he starts to read scripture again, really for his, his own. Um, and Aquinas and many others, instead, because of the lack, I think, of theological um, developments and terms and how to articulate things faithfully, um, and their lack of distinction between justification and sanctification, would say, well, because we grow in sanctification, 
right? And we're saved, and at least with sanctification, this is gradually infused into us. And we have to first identify the, why that's problematic, because that leads to um, that leads to us earning our own salvation, right? And not the work of what Christ has done for us alone on the cross. We can't save ourselves. It's by the gift of faith that Christ gives us that we can receive his righteousness and it's imputed onto us. So imputation, quick, immediate, whole infusation. Think of like a IV drip bag. It's like just gradually dropping into you. Um, before we get to Romans chapter 3, which I think is going to be in 4, how do you see a relationship between purgatory and infusation? It's in the process of it slowly over time. Yeah. So you didn't make it all the way, so you have to go to purgatory to pay your pains to get across the finish line? Yep. Yeah, very close. One is a logical, like, if you're going to go with the infusation theory of righteousness, it's infused in you drip by drip over time. Well, man, you can push a whole lot through a whole lot faster when you're, when you're suffering in purgatory. Um, to complete that work of becoming righteous. But if we are actually given and regarded as having the righteousness of Christ, declared righteous, the righteousness of God then there is no need to punish us for our sins because the Son has taken the eternal punishment for our sin and given us the righteousness of God. In the grand exchange, our sin, he took, his righteousness he gave. Let's look in Romans chapter 3, end of Romans 3, beginning of Romans chapter 4, for how... God justifies and saves the ungodly. Again, I like, remember Pelagius began by looking and saying, hey, these people in Rome claim to know the Lord, but they've got a sin problem. Accurately identified. Wrong solution with his theology. Aquinas is looking around and he's saying, hey, people aren't living righteously as they should. Accurate identification. Wrong theology to get there and support what they ought to be doing. Okay? So, Romans chapter 3, verse 19 and following. I'm going to read a couple of verses and we'll, we'll stop, we'll talk about it, see what relates to the justification of the ungodly and how Christ redeems and what happens in redemption or in salvation. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So what do we have so far from these verses? All accountable to God. So we give an account to God, not owing Satan. We give an account to him. 
And what do works of the law accomplish for us? Knowledge of sin. Yeah. The, the law tells us what sin is. It shows us we have sinned. We don't get justified by showing what we have done wrong. It shows us what we have done wrong. It doesn't show us how to be right. All right, verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So how many get the righteousness of God? This is all who believe. Yeah. All who believe. Yeah. So we don't know how many exactly, but we know it's the word all. And it's which audience on the all? I mean, is it all, all people? No, it's all who believe. So all believers, not select few believers, not special saints, all who believe. Okay. For there is no distinction. All have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So there's one means of salvation for all who believe. Because all have failed to give God the honor that he is due. And yet can be justified by an external action, not ourselves, but his grace given to us through the redemption that is in Jesus, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation, another word for that, atoning sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. So we get the language of redemption and atoning sacrifice received, not by works, but by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What a beautiful phrase, just, that God would be just and the justifier of those who have faith. So that is that aspect that Anselm was hinting at, that God as just, cannot simply just show leniency, but he must be the just, so he must be just, and yet he is still justifier through the satisfactory work of the Son on our behalf. Ramifications, what becomes a boasting, it's excluded by what kind of law, law of works? No, law of faith. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. God, the God of Jews, is God the God of Jews only, not the God of Gentiles? Yes, of Gentiles too. God is one who will justify the uncircumcised, the circumcised by faith, the uncircumcised through faith. Do we overthrow the law by this faith? No means on the contrary. We uphold the law, which points us to, and then we get two examples. Verse, chapter 4, verse 1. What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him or declared to him it was counted to him as righteousness so Abraham's declaration of being righteous was not because he had displayed righteousness but because 
of faith. And this is good Abraham here. This is like good father Abraham gets awesome music when he enters into the ring. And yet his righteousness was not an earned righteousness. It was a declared righteousness. Contrasting that, we'll see an example in just a minute. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but what does he do? And to the one who does not work, but believes him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessings to one whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered, the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. That same blessing was counted to the circumcised and the uncircumcised. David here confessing his sin. Abraham stands for the good example. If anyone was going to be declared righteous, because of their goodness, it was Abraham, and yet he is declared righteous because of faith prior to his actions of obedience, okay? prior to him like walking with God as he should, and in spite of him not walking with God as he should, David, right here, this is the example of David repenting of his grand sin, most likely with Bathsheba and her husband, Uriah. If anyone was too bad to receive God's grace, that was the moment to be too bad to receive God's grace. And yet both declared righteous, counted as righteous apart from works. So that's the Romans 3 and 4, just a little nuggets as on how, on nuggets on how God grants righteousness that we can look at more when we look at the Reformation age. Got an article there on purgatory, and then a little preview of scripture and tradition with Pastor Sam next week. Any questions as we wrap up? All right, let's pray. God, thank you that you Love us even when we have dishonored you. That you sent your son as a display of your love and to satisfy the wrath that we deserve. To not allow us to be captive to sin and its consequences. But instead to be brought into a relationship of peace with you. Thank you that you declare us righteous in Christ. Would we live out the righteousness that you have put in us each day so that others seeing our lives would know that your righteousness is what is in us and what is being lived through us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.